Brought to you by Soul Fire Productions. Hello and welcome to Mother the Mother. I am McLean McGowan. This podcast is an offering for all women to gather energetically, sister to sister, mother to mother, to co-create a sacred space for healing, educating, and sharing as we journey through motherhood and womanhood. It is such an incredibly powerful moment in time to be a woman, and I thank you for showing up on behalf of yourself and for all of the women in your lives, past, present, and future, to honor our matriarchal lines, all who came before, and all who will come after. Hi everyone, welcome to the Mother the Mother podcast, 2022 edition. I am your host, McLean McGowan, and I am so grateful to be back here with you. I took a brief pause over the holidays, some much needed time within to recharge, to allow for whatever was ready to be released and fall away, to do just that. And I think we get so caught in the doing, even when it's stuff that we love, that we don't allow ourselves to really have deaths and rebirths. You know, that's a theme I talk about a lot. And I certainly think that it is an opportunity with the seasons as we move through winter to allow for all of those things that are ready to fall away to fall away, like the leaves on the trees, and come back with renewed energy, renewed vigor, renewed focus, and renewed self, really. So I'm very happy to be back, and I am amped for this new year. I will be showing up in some different ways, you know, still completely McLean, myself, and devoted to this work of working with women and mothers through conception all the way through to postpartum and on into motherhood. And it'll just be shifting logistically just a little bit. I'll be sharing more and more about that. But Mom Club is coming back this month. So if you have not been part of it and are interested, please reach out. You can find all the information in the link tree in my bio on Instagram at Mother the Mother. One-on-one coaching. I have a couple of spots open for the next couple of months. So if you're interested in that, again, you can find me on Instagram and reach out and we will schedule a free discovery call just to see if this is the right time and alignment with what you're wanting to call in for yourself for this new year. And I will be offering some courses and group coaching containers as well moving forward. So I'm so excited. I've got a lot of new stuff on the horizon. I am homeschooling my kids, doing outdoor school. So full on mom zone as well. But, you know, per usual, we are all figuring it out as we go. And living life right now is a work in progress and there's always ample room to level up and change course, course correct when needed. And I do feel like it's a very exciting time of awakening and positive change. So here we go. I wanted to start this off with a daily crystal inspiration card. This is my new card deck, which I'm loving. So before we go into the interview, if you can close your eyes, if you can't close your eyes, just allow them to be relaxed, coming into self, taking a couple of long, deep breaths, feeling the outer contours of your body, your bones, your skin, your muscles, your organs, your heart beating, calling in all that you want to call in today releasing all which you want to release. And it's really important to always know that in each breath, we have that capacity. We have that ability, right? We have that sacred ability to shift our mind, which then shifts our body, which then shifts our reality at any given moment throughout our day. It takes some self-discipline and some self-awareness, but it's totally available to all of us at all times. So I'm pulling a card for the highest good of all involved, all of you listening today. May whatever resonates come into your sphere and that which does not gently release away. Mm. I pulled the card Chrysoprase. Never even heard of it. It's a beautiful, almost looks like green glass, like green sea glass. Allow yourself to receive. It can sometimes be easier to give than to receive, but receiving help from others is a necessary component of a healthy lifestyle. Open to receiving as much as you give. Remember, you cannot pour from an empty cup. There has to be a balance between give and take in all of your relationships, 
whether it's friends, family, or coworkers. If you notice yourself feeling guilty or uneasy when others give to you, shift your attitude so that you can embrace what they have to offer you. Where do you give more than you receive? What feelings cause you to do so? What shifts can you make to create more balance in your relationships? Affirm, I allow myself to receive. Today, say thank you without hesitation or deflection to all compliments that come your way. And so it is. Wow, I love that. And I feel like we all could use that medicine. That's something I'm always really attuned to is I tend to deflect compliments or kind of play them down. And I've really been working on not doing that because there's so much beauty in receiving the gift that comes from another person, right? And especially as mothers, we do so much, we give so much that it totally becomes second nature. We don't even think about it, that we actually get really uncomfortable with receiving in this like kind of weird back channeled way. So I love that card. And that is totally the whole basis of mom club is to receive, to refill your cup so that you can give more and be more for not only yourself, but your children and your family, because life is full and we've got to be strong right now. We have to have the focus of the warrior, the mindful, peaceful warrior, but we must be refilled to do that because if not, we will have zero patience. We will have zero bandwidth to deal with life as it presents itself. So come join us, find your tribe, find your community. We are here waiting for you. I'm so excited to gather with all of you. So today's guest is a very important one to me, Renette Sinem. For me personally, she feels like the hope for the state of California. She is a fourth generation Californian, and I'm so excited to share this interview with you all. If you have been following the topic of medical freedom in your own state, wherever you are in this world, but certainly here in California, where we tend to have a lot of extra precautions and mandates. Renette is speaking truth. She is speaking for body autonomy. She is speaking for the land. She is speaking for regenerative farming. And she is someone that I am fully behind and fully supporting as we go into the governor race of 2022 here in California. And even regardless of the politics, she's just an incredible woman and role model. And it was such an honor to be able to have her in my home, to speak with her. And I'm so excited to follow her and hopefully gather us women here in LA to support her in her journey and running for governor because she really has mothers and children at the seat and foundation of her entire platform. So without further ado, here is Renette Sinem. Hi, Renette. Hi. So nice to have you here. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I know you are a busy woman right now. I am, but I'm sitting here in front of you enjoying my nice hot cup of tea. It's lovely. Good. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful rainy day here in Los Angeles, which always really feels special and auspicious. So thank you. I never, ever complain about the rain anymore, ever. I know. (laughs) So I want to just jump right in. There's so much to talk about. And before we start, though, we're going to do a quick Earth Warriors card pull, which I always do. Just ground us in to the highest good for this conversation, to our community. Mm. It is Chaaska, Star of Venus. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful woman mm-hmm. with the third eye opening and heart opening. Mm. So third eye and heart chakra. Mm-hmm. So I'll just do a quick read. Great. If you're listening and you want to close your eyes or able to close your eyes, just take a moment to ground down, coming into your body, and per usual, allowing what resonates to come in to your sphere and what does not resonate to gently wash away back into the ethers from which it came. Chaaska, Star of Venus, supports an inner shift to higher consciousness. Whether or not you consider yourself to be financially skillful, part of your sacred power and purpose includes the healing of economic and financial matters in your own life and the world. You are meant to experience abundance, creating and sharing prosperity from a place of inner spiritual security. A healing liberation from poverty consciousness allows the universe to work through you more easily without the obstruction of negative conditioning. Financial healing is indicated. Let go of fear and trust unconditionally that the universe is supporting you. What brings you a sense of joy, purpose, and passionate devotion? Focus on that. Believe in your ability to thrive by being and expressing your authentic self. Notice how you relax and to flow and more easily attract what you need when you acknowledge that the universe wants you to flourish through being you. Focus on putting your beautiful beliefs out into the world, not in consuming the negativity or fear of others. 
Give of your spirit abundantly. Nothing is beyond the reach of divine assistance. Trust in this, and you can fulfill your purpose of being a positive influence in the world. The oracle of Chaaska is the oracle of Venus, the morning and evening star. She heralds the transition into a new reality of higher consciousness and healed experience regarding money, financial power, and resources. This oracle guides you to give up false shame of not having enough or guilt for having too much. Your true worth is a matter of soul and has nothing to do with material things. As you relax and acknowledge the love that the universe has for you, your material reality will unfold with grace and divine support. Place your sense of security not in the amount of money you have, but in the unconditional love and endless generosity that the universe wishes to share with you. Trust that the universe will provide you with all you need to fully live your life. When you are given something, accept it and consult your own heart for how you might share that resource with wisdom. Give yourself permission to stop making financial matters an issue in your own mind. Trust that the universe knows what it's doing and all matters can be resolved according to a loving higher intelligence. Focus on giving of your gifts to the world as generously as you can whilst opening up to receive fully and fearlessly. As a sacred change maker, you are asked to broaden your definition of currency from pertaining only to money to include that which has meaning for you at a soul level. This may include integrity, authenticity, relationship, consciousness, and community. In your relationship with yourself and others, how might you express such a currency of soul? Seek and treasure that which cannot be quantified monetarily. Cultivate and share your experience of true wealth in the best and broadest sense. Some indigenous cultures define this wealth not as how much you accumulate for personal gain, but by how much you are able to give in support of your community. This creation and honoring of soul currency does not mean that you are to be denied money or financial healing. It is about placing that in correct context. It shifts fear of lack into trust in spirit. The recognition of soul currency helps unravel an obsession with money freeing your mind and emotions to be reordered into a more relaxed and open attitude towards financial matters. This in turn makes it easier for you to receive the generous flow of abundance from the universe. Seeing wealth as more money and refusing to make money an indication of success and the worth of a person is the antidote to the wound of separateness. That wound creates selfishness, ignorance, jealousy, and greed, stealing from community and depriving future generations their rightful inheritance. This is the conscious economics of bringing people together, not driving them apart. When it is wisely placed within a soulful hierarchy and definition of value, not above it or beyond it, money can be part of a more full and sacred relationship of exchange, not something that creates division. We feel happier, more connected, and at peace. A spirit of hope, optimism, inspiration, and boldness of belief takes hold of our hearts and we begin to feed the malnourished souls on the planet with good spiritual food. We no longer wait for the new world. We become it. <laughs> and the healing process would be to put your hand on your heart and say this. I give thanks for the abundance of grace available for all beings. I open my heart to let go of diminishing beliefs and interpretations of events. I no longer carry fear in my heart. My heart is filled with trust and peace. I give thanks for divine intervention, innovation, and blessing on behalf of all beings in all matters of economics. Great spirit of love, please guide, assist, and protect each one of us in all worldly matters. And so it is. Wow, that was fabulous. We're going to have to hit upon that <laughs> wow. during this conversation on a few few Ooh, different points. <laughs> that was so apropos to uh-huh, you uh-huh, and your work. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was fabulous. That was amazing. Yeah, that is. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a uh, great way to start. Yeah. I know it always kind of grounds in mm-hmm. the direction. Mm-hmm. Which I, I mm-hmm. love doing this oracle by Alana Fairchild is mm. my fave. So yeah, let's just dive in. What do you <laughs> feel like starting with? Well, you know, you're talking about, you know, no longer wait for the new world, but but become it. And my team and I, and I'll explain what my team is here shortly, but we've been talking about how what we are doing right now, just even the thought was not available to us two years ago, right? The opportunity was not available to us two years ago. The cracks in the system, mm-hmm. they weren't opening up as they are today to allow us to do what we're doing. And so that's why I'm here sitting before you because, you know, I'm, I'm now, I have an incredible team that is growing and we're, you know, I'm running for governor for the state of California for the, the June 2022 primary election. And, uh, and it's with no political affiliation whatsoever. And it's, the foundation is based upon the seventh generation principle. So those cards were pretty spot on talking about 
uh, you know, ensuring future generations uh, its rightful inheritance. This whole entire campaign is based upon that because right now, as my dear friend Lee Dunda says, you know, I've been saying, well, we've stolen the children's future. And she said, well, actually, we've even even stolen there today. And that's not okay. Not, you know, all the sacrifices that have been made by our ancestors, right? We're standing on, you know, the shoulders of these giants. And for us to betray them and their sacrifices and to allow what's happening today is not okay. And, but the beautiful thing is, is that what we are now doing is that we're not focusing on what's wrong as much. What we have done is we've taken and assessed the biggest risks and threats California is facing. And we have done the ultimate Aikido move and we have transmuted those threats into our biggest opportunities. And we have a 30 page blueprint for that. So we've we've made sure that if I'm going to run for governor, and this is a long conversation we had a year ago when I made the decision, it was a two month conversation that I had said that well, if I'm going to run for governor, I'm you know I'm not going to do more of the same. If you want me to just do another campaign, then forget about it. Why would I waste my time and my life? Because it's a sacrifice. You're definitely yeah. giving over your life yeah. <laughs> for at least a while. And so we talked like it's got to be about the children. It's got to be about you know waking waking up the mama bears and papa bears. And this was our whole entire you know, slogan over a year ago, we had wake the bear stickers. We've handed out thousands of them, wake the bear on the California flag, state flag. And, and we were, you know, already keyed into that. This is, they're coming after the children. We're going to be waking up the mama bears and the papa bears. So, yeah, so that's, that's where I am today. And so the card you just pulled was very apropos because it's, it's spot on, you know, and I guess what I could do is maybe just give a brief history of, of why, why would I even be jumping yeah, into the, please. <laughs> yeah, cause it is, it is such a huge undertaking it's and huge, it's yeah. just, I mean, just seeing you, it's just, I'm like overcome with the, like the amount of like ovaries it took to do this, to like walk <laughs> right. this walk because it's a lot of work it's a lot and of work. a lot yeah. of shade thrown at you i'm sure yeah too. you yeah, yeah you, mean, you have to expect to be raked over the coals yeah. you just have to expect it so but i i do have the skin for it i mean that's one reason why they were saying hey <laughs> so real yeah. briefly um and i'll try to keep it as short as possible um i'm from a tiny little town in northern california called nevada city i was raised in nevada county california since i was four um and this is in the, the sierra foothills uh you know kind of northwest near Lake Tahoe up in the Sierra, you know, foothills. And so I was uh, a two-time city council member, vice mayor and mayor, you know, two times. And in fact, uh, I was mayor of Nevada City when COVID hit and I signed a declaration of emergency. And I was actually quite concerned with how slow the county and cities were moving on it because I was watching this since January. I just kind of keyed in really quickly when it erupted in, in China. And and what was shocking me was um, how the, the government was responding to it. And I was never concerned about MERS or SARS or H1N1 or anything like that. But this was the response of the Chinese government that got caught my attention. And so finally, uh, the counties and cities did, you know, move on a little bit. And then, of course, Newsom did his lockdown orders. My partner, uh, Susan and I, she's, we've been together for 14 years. We actually already self-quarantined ahead of schedule. We got the N95 masks. We got the UV lights because I was like, look, at if this is as virulent as they're saying, and I was going off the Johns Hopkins University uh, models, all they had at the time were predictive models. I'm like, uh, if it's as virulent as they're saying, it's swirling around right here, right now. Mm-hmm. And our government should have actually um, acted uh, you know, weeks ago. So finally, there was the lockdown. And then um, what was interesting is we went into Zoom calls, private Zoom calls with the county officials and the city managers and the city mayors and so on in our county. And I was like, okay, we're, you know, I think be conservative right now, be extra safe right now. There's so many unknowns. But once we get the actual raw data coming in, then we can adjust accordingly. We'll have some real data. Then the, the real data started to come in and there was no adjustment. And I started seeing red flags really fast. And I started asking questions during these Zoom calls saying, hey, um, what's the goal? What's the metrics? What are we shooting for? Um, you know, first it was, you know, flatten, two weeks to flatten the curve and don't inundate the hospitals. And and now it's gone from deaths to just, you know, positive cases. And and then ultimately, every time I would ask these questions, I would literally be shut down. They wouldn't even let me speak in Zoom calls, right? Or they'd say, wait till the end of the meeting and we'll, we'll answer your questions when everyone's off the call. And so ultimately, um, I had just won my third election. Uh, to city council and was getting ready to step up. And then in June, uh, once again, Newsom did his mass mandate statewide. And I was like, wow, I didn't know a governor had that kind of power. So I went down to our uh, police chief and I said, Chad, I said, this uh, statewide mandate, I said, I'm not questioning the validity of, of masks. I'm just like, I didn't know the governor had the, uh, the authority to do this. 
And he's like, well, and I said, can you enforce this? He said, I don't know how. We don't have a penal code. I mean, you know, the, you have to have a penal code in order to, to enforce something. Wow. I'm like, okay, thank you very much. And he wow. goes, and he goes, it doesn't sound very constitutional to me. I'm like, yeah, because I know how laws are made. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not made by unilaterally by a governor. There's a whole right. long, laborious process that involves the legislator and legislators, and and you have to have empirical evidence and data and and you know all this information, including public, you know, input and so on, and public comments. So, and it takes quite a while. This did not happen. So. I was really watching the California press and nobody was pushing back. Nobody was saying a peep. And I thought, this is really scary because this is a slippery slope we're, we're entering right now. So I did the only thing I could and I went to my Facebook page, right? And I put a post and I made sure it was, you know, nice and clear and pretty you know, outspoken. Mm-hmm. And I just said, hey, as you go about your day, you know, this new mass mandate, just know that uh, mandates are not laws and the governor cannot, he's not king. He, mm-hmm. he does not have the unilateral power to make a law. So just... Enjoy and breathe and go about it. And as I expected, it exploded. And it was not the first time I've gotten the the media, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the media's (laughs) attention with my Facebook posts. I've done it on quite a few occasions. And it's generally for me a a last resort. And so if we had real journalism, I wouldn't have to resort to my Facebook page. Which is so wild. I mean, first of all, yeah. It is wild. So um, we had the, you know, all the news stations were up there and LA Times and SACB and SFGate were all just eviscerating me saying, oh, this mayor says, you know, your masks don't work. I'm saying, no, 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 I'm talking about how laws are made and, and the power of the governor. And the governor does not have this 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 jurisdiction to do this. So now we come to July 8th and I'm having my Zoom city council meeting and I'm ready to take my oath for my new term for four years and step down as mayor. And instead, I read my resignation letter wow. and they were shocked. They were wow. just shocked. Now I have to tell you the history with me and my little town is Almost 20 years ago, I started investing in Nevada City because I, I was really concerned about the state of the world. And I thought, well, what can I possibly do? You know, I'm just one person. And I thought, well, if you're going to change the world, you start with your own mm-hmm. your own community. So I ran for city council at that time in 2008, got the most votes in the history, 150-year history of Nevada City, wow. 84%. That's incredible. It was 82 or 84. I'm pretty sure 84, but it could be 82%. And, and then I started working on making Nevada City more resilient. So I started the first organic farmer's market in the county, and we got... Uh, you know, solar panels and all the municipally owned buildings. We started a time bank. Um, I actually, in two days, got 100 volunteers. And we, we built a fleet of micro houses on wheels for the homeless. And for three years, I wheeled out into the into the woods for the homeless until we got a, a, a home, you know, a homeless shelter all year long. And then I started a, an extreme weather shelter for the homeless because they had no place to go during really bad weather. And, and so my objective was to a- allow people to come into our town and go, oh, this is what community is. Oh, this is what a sense of play. I want this. And go back home and, and, mm-hmm. and do the same, right? So that was that's what I was doing. And when COVID hit, everything changed. In fact, my world was, was tipped upside down. And a lot of the good work I'd done was just like eviscerated and just almost disappeared in some ways. And so, I mean, there's still things happening, but it's just, it's just a different world. And so then when I stepped down, I read my resignation letter. This is what I said, which was not very popular with the elected officials, but I said... There's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Leonard Hardell, who was well known in certain circles for con- convincing the World Health Organization that that Agent Orange was a carcinogen, was a cancer-causing agent. And once that was done, he went to all the heads of the different chemical companies and said, stop spraying, you're committing crimes against humanity. And those who did not stop spraying, they were hauled into the world courts. And in order to determine whether or not you were committing a crime against humanity, all you needed was one question to be asked, and one question only, which was, what did you know? By when? And so I said to my elected officials when I was saying my goodbye, I said, we're going to come back and we're going to hold your feet to the fire to the highest extent of the law. And we're going to ask you, what did you know by when? Because you even now, and this was over a year ago, well over a year ago, it was July of 2020. I said, you have enough information right now to be adjusting yourselves accordingly to the information. And you're not. Mm-hmm. And, and I stepped down. And I said, I'm stepping down to step up. And at that time, I actually thought it was... Because I was thinking, what can I possibly do? Because at this point in time, I could not be vocal and not have my poor city hall staff be in the crosshairs. It was really hard on them because they had to take all the emails and the phone calls and people, we love her. No, we hate her. We love her. We hate her. (laughs) And I'm like, and I can't be quiet. Mm-hmm. On this at all. So I decided to step down and I started a YouTube channel, which has now been deplatformed. So I moved most of the videos to BitChute called Renette Senum's Chew on this. And what I thought I could do, okay, all I can do is I'm going to go out there and there's very little, except for like Peggy Hall, there's very few people out there 
even questioning or bringing in the different experts, you know, in the respective fields to educate people. So I started this to bring in the people who could speak to this. So we had everyone from Sherry Tenpenny. In fact, I, that video went really viral. That's when I really got deplatformed. And that was, it was the first video out there about the, at the time, it was the 10 mechanisms of injury around the, the COVID shots. And that got millions and millions of hits. And then I did, you know, I also interviewed David uh, David Martin and uh, Lee Dundas, of course, and uh, Professor Dolores Cahill and Dr. Carrie Midday. And oh my gosh, it just goes on and on. Just a long list of people, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. And all I want to do is just, here's the information. Make your own choice. It's all about choice. Make yes. your own choice. Your your informed choice. Well, at that point in time, I was also, when I started this, I was on Del Big Trees, The High Wire. And then I had people saying, oh, you should run for governor. And I kept saying, absolutely <laughs> not. My partner and I are, we're, you know, test driving RVs and we're looking to run, in, you know, <laughs> off into the sunset. And then I tried to imagine doing that. And it was like, there's no way. I'm all about leading and bringing people together and being very creative. I totally believe in the collective genius. But if I have to get in the ring and fight... I'll fight. I know how to fight. I come from a family of fighters, big fighters. And if I have to, I'm going to fight. And I'm like, I can't walk away from this. This is a do or die moment for humanity. So I did have people say, run. I'm like, no interest. And then I had a, a um, who are now two individuals who are now my chief of staff contact me who are very much involved in California politics. And we just talked for two months. And originally I was talking with them because I just, there weren't many people to talk to at the time. And I'm like, right. what are you seeing? What do you, what's your vantage point? You know, what do you, and, and then when they start talking about like, really, you should run. And that's when I said, well, look at, you know, if you really want me to run, A, I'm not running with a party affiliation. And I know that comes with its own mm -hmm. challenges. But it is absolutely impossible to run as a Democrat or Republican and actually serve the California people right mm -hmm. now. Amen. Yes. And if we continue to vote for those parties, we'll never be voting for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to send a message to both parties. They need to clean, clean up their act. Yeah. They need to. And there's so many of us that do feel, you know, this coin term politically homeless. Yeah. So we, we know, are there are a lot of us. There's, there's a lot of us, but what we can do is we actually can vote for the first time vote for California. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. That was one of the foundational requests I made is like, okay, no political affiliation. So that means that we have no money behind us. So I think it's kind of funny that you're talking about like the money, it'll come this and that, because we have to raise millions of dollars and we don't have, we're not coming with a, a political base that's intact. Right. We've, we've got to start from the bottom up, right? It's a, it's a zero to 60 Herculean lift essentially. So again, those cards are, the card was mm, spot on. And then the other thing, of course, is the seventh generation principle. And I am a person who has been in the trenches for a long time. I love getting my hands dirty. I love to be hands-on doing the work. And yet I'm watching, you know, our society and our communities and our world just backslide. And I'm watching this going, why is this happening? Why is our constitution just being absolutely eviscerated? And then when I really started to look into it, I started realizing, I'm like, wait a second, it's missing some really important pieces. And so most Americans, and there's a few stories I really want to get out there. And this is one of the most important stories. Our constitution was inspired by the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. So our constitution was inspired by the indigenous people of Turtle Island. Most people don't know that. But what also was interesting is that our forefathers were smart enough to go, hey, this is a great idea. Let's do it. Nice concept, right? But they forgot these two important components of this beautiful vessel. And that's the anchor and the compass. Now, have you ever seen a boat without momentum? If you have a boat that doesn't have wind in its sail or the propeller's not spinning, if you're in a storm, it's going to bob up and down, up and down until finally it falls apart and it's going to sink. What really keeps a boat afloat is momentum. And our constitution has no momentum. So what we're saying is like, look at guys, what we need to do is we need to ensure that whatever decision we make today, it serves seven generations from now. That is the seventh generation principle. That is the compass that this vessel needs. The anchor is... When we make a decision today, we tap into the elders and they actually draw in and fold in the intelligence of the last seven generations. So basically, you're spanning 14 generations of wisdom. You're keeping that constitution intact and it's actually moving always forward towards that shore of the seventh generation. And it's a destination we'll never get to, but that's not the point. The point is you're going to keep that constitution intact because it has, it has a shore. It has a measurement. It has a standard that we hold it by. So beautiful. Yeah, and it's unusual. That's not a normal, yeah. that, right? 
So that was an important piece. The mm-hmm. other important piece is I said, look, it, I'm really sick and tired of us voting for bills and candidates who we really don't know who they are or what they're going to stand for uh, once the bill's passed or once they get in office. And I said, I call it pulling a Pelosi where she's like, well, you got to vote for the bill in order to understand what's in it. And I'm like, well, that's really bad politics. <laughs> Let's just start right there. That's really stupid. And so I said, you know, I want people to know who I am and what I stand for before they ever go to the polling place. And I, so we started a year ago crafting something called Contract with Californians. And what I love about this is it's inspired by two different people, Newt Gingrich, who also wrote Contract with Americans, and then that inspired Ice Cube to write a Contract with Black Americans. So we have these two diametrically opposed individuals, right? And we're like, you know what? But they're, they're on point. They've got something there. So we devised this beautiful 30-page contract with Californians. And it's real basic common sense. And what's in it is foundationally, it's about that seven-generation principle. But it's also what we do is we were looking at the biggest threats and the risks of, of California. Like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to do an Aikido move. We're going to transmute these threats that are coming at us, and we're going to turn them into our biggest opportunities. And we're going to be spending the rest of our lives and actually for generations healing from what we've all experienced. And not just even with COVID, but we've been experiencing a lot of trauma for a long, long time. And what we have to understand is it's it's up to us to build the world we want. But people also don't realize, for instance, the witch hunt of Europe. The witch hunts in Europe lasted for 300 years. And throughout Europe... Local economies of the cities and villages were based upon the witch hunt, right? You had the magistrate who had to be paid. You had the guillotine maker, the fire starter, the the witch hunter, right? Local economies were built upon tracking down people and burning them at the stake. That was the economy. That was the backbone. And today, you know, we have resource, you know, extraction. We have, you know, really, I would say slavery because a lot of people are enslaved, you know, producing items and so on. We have an economy based upon a lot of destruction, and we can equally create an economy based upon healing. It's up to us. So what would that look like? Well, in this contract with Californians, you know, we have things like restoring common sense education, right? Like teaching kids how to use their hands, right? How to actually do critically thinking, you know, how to fix things and build things and make things, you know. Hello, how to think for themselves. And so there's that. There's also, you know, resource stewardship. There is, of course, food and farms. And so what we're doing is we want to focus, for instance, regenerative farming, really focus on regenerative farming and use that also as a mechanism of healing. And people will say, well, what do you mean? Like, well, for instance, you know, we can start having victory gardens, right? Little home gardens, community gardens in our neighborhoods, in our front yards, in our nursing homes, in our schools. This is a great way to bring people together, get off of the divisive topics and start talking about how healthy is your soil? How's that carrot look? Hey, let's celebrate the bounty of our labor and let's have a meal together and break bread. And this sounds all pie in the sky, but I'm just telling you, this is from my personal experience. I've done these things. All I'm doing is scaling up. All this that I'm talking about, I've already done on a small level. And all we need to do is scale it up. That's incredible. So it's not pie in the sky. And also a lot of our grandparents, great-grandparents did that. It's not crazy. No, it's, more, it's, it's very... so radical, it's old-fashioned. Exactly. It's so radical, it's actually old-fashioned, <laughs> right? That's how radical it yeah. is. And we're kind of repeating history here again, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. I mean, in World we're coming War, back to that. We're coming back. We're going full circle. And so like when you think about World War II... of the produce that we provided in America was provided through our victory gardens. 40%. Don't tell me we can't do that again. So what we're looking at is, okay, we want to expand regenerative farming. We want to expand and protect the legacy farms. We want to ensure that we rebuild our topsoil because we only have 64 years left of topsoil in this country, in the world. 64 years, and then we don't have topsoil. Right now, we just found this out. Did you know that China's coming in here and actually scraping out the top three feet of our soil in California and shipping it over to China? That's how valuable our topsoil is. So there's that kind of stuff happening. Okay, then there's also the pollinator gardens, right? Mm -hmm. Our pollinator populations. The objective is to build that back up too. Now, what's so beautiful about this, these are some of the biggest crises that we're facing. But what's so lovely is we have to understand that if we think, even if I become governor and we'll, we would kick butt. No doubt we would kick butt. But this is all hands on deck. We need everybody right now. This is, we are in a deep, deep, deep hole and we need everybody to lift ourselves out of this hole. What that means is like, okay, hey, can you go out there and, and, and build a bee house? Can you go out there and save your scraps of food and, and, and help us with rebuilding our topsoil? Hey, can you, can you start a little victory garden in your front yard? And right there, we are completely transmuting all of the biggest risks and threats we're looking at 
right into our favor. And we're building our local economies based upon that. And then, you know, and that's like the, the lovely kind of, you know, green uh, vision. And then we have the more uh, brick and mortar, which is, okay, we have something called the Infrastructure Bank here in, in California that is more like a kind of a cash cow for our, our politicians right now. But um, really, the Infrastructure Bank is for infrastructure loans for California, like for bridges and dams and, and roads and so on. But what we want to do is we actually want to uh, to to um, to lift the cap on on the, the size of loans because they're not, it's like 25 million, 50 million. Well, that's not much for an infrastructure job. We want to actually lift that up much higher. And we want to make sure that we also broaden it so that we actually have the mom and pop businesses that had shuttered so they can get a quarter percent loan Instead of a five or eight percent loan, we want to make sure that we have small to mid-sized manufacturers. Also, we want to help them with the infrastructure bank. So we're going to utilize the infrastructure we already have, but we're going to be a lot smarter about it. Because right now, when we go and get loans, we're borrowing from Wall Street, and we're losing tens and tens—I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars a year to interest. Mm. Hundreds of millions of dollars are seeping out of the state of California, going into Wall Street bankers, essentially. Because we're paying interest. Like, why don't we just do it ourselves? Yeah. Lower interest rates, make it fast, easy, and accessible, and save this state hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that can go back in and add to that what's called an economic multiplier effect. It's not rocket science. And so this is what we're working on. And it's a beautiful plan. It's not reactive. You know, mm -hmm. it's, 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 we're being proactive and we're like building that. In fact, you even said it here, right? You no longer wait for the new world. We become it. Yeah. And that's what we're like. We're going to become this, this new world. Yeah. And we have the, the impetus is there. People have the desire. We don't have leaders. And then I'm going to add one other little element to this, which is really important. And again, I'm speaking from experience here. Back in 2009, when I was the, the vice mayor, I was inspired by the country of Bhutan because it has something called the, the happiness index. And, and what they do is every single year, they have this like 70-page survey that the people of Bhutan have to fill out. It takes hours. So they ask questions like, you know, how thick is your wheat shaft? You know, because they grow wheat. And how, how fat is your ox? You know, they want to know. You know mm -hmm. <laughs> they're actually, the details. Yeah, they're gauging the wellness, <laughs> you know, of your life. And, mm -hmm. and in America, we have what's called the GDP, the gross domestic product, which unfortunately what adds to the GDP is death, illness, uh, catastrophe, forest fires, yeah resource extraction. This is this does not reflect mm -hmm. uh, Americans or Californians' well-being whatsoever. But what I do know for a fact is that, because I did this in 2009 in, in my little tiny town in Nevada City, is there's there's actually a wellness in, index for Americans, right? And so what we could do and what we should do is California every single year should have a survey, and I think it should be incentivized, that you you take the survey and we can ask specific questions like, do you have access to clean water? Do you live in a food desert? Do you have access to organic fresh produce? Do you feel safe in your neighborhood? Do you have access to higher education, to arts? Mm -hmm. You know, um, do you, um, I mean, there's all these different things that you can do. You know, do you have the ability to, to have dinner a few nights a week? You know, sit down dinner with your family. You know, do you even have time to take a nap or read a book once in a while? I mean, these are all, these are all measurements of, of a society's wellness. And what's beautiful is that, and elected officials don't like this, but what you can do is you have this and you can actually dial it down to every single neighbor within California and see how well are your elected officials representing you. And if they get a low score in a certain area, then they, they have some time to bump up that score, right? And change policies and so on, or do some funding to, to ensure they can bump up those numbers. And if they don't, guess what? You can either recall them or throw them out the next election. Mm -hmm. We have no metrics no standard for our elected officials. And let me tell you, they don't want one. Yeah, of course. They don't want you to really know how well or how well they're not doing. And I think that that's just such a key point because there's so much frustration in everyone that I'm close with or know that does not feel seen or heard by our elected officials. And it's just so inefficient. Because you don't have the money. They're only listening to the top. At 100%. Yeah. And and you know that's kind of that's kind of our fault, you know. I mean, and granted, it's been generations in the making of convincing us that oh, we've got it covered, we don't need your assistance, we've got it. Don't worry. But and I have to tell you from what I've experienced too, as a city council member, as a mayor, as going to you know the county supervisor meetings and so on, 
talking to other city council members of other cities, they don't want public input. They do not like it when the public is involved and in the chambers and, and at, you know, at the, the, the mic giving public comment. My whole thing is because I believe in, believe in the collective genius. I do. And I know how to tap into that. I know how to sense the pulse. I know how to tap into it. And my objective has always been from a leader is to clear the path so you can get from point A to point B as easily and as efficiently as possible. Leaders don't like to really do that. And that means it's public input. And really, when I would have my city council meetings, I'd bring people into the chambers, because let me tell you, I could bring more people into my city council chambers than any council member I've ever seen. And, and the, the city used to hate that. The staff didn't like it. And the city manager didn't like that. And the city council members didn't like that. And they get really mad. And they're like, you know, they call it the, it's the cult of Renette. It's the church of Renette. And I'm like, you know, I said, you have to understand something. I said... I can't force people to show up. And the only reason why people are showing up when I, I do a Facebook post saying, hey, you, you know, this is happening, blah, 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 show up, is because I've been listening to them and I've been getting in the ring and I've been fighting for them. And they know that when I do a shout out saying, hey, I need you right now for this one meeting, I've been doing all this work, but right now I need your voice. And if this is important to you, show up. Well, they would show up in droves. I would pack the chambers. And the council could never understand that. I'm like, well, you can't understand that because you've never led that way. That's not how you function. That's not your MO. And it was always a mystery to them. So they call it the Church of the Church of that. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, and how refreshing to actually be doing what it is, the whole job. I mean, I that's know. what it's supposed to be. That's right. That's right. Um, because it is so sad. I mean, there's so much I adore about California. I've been here almost two decades. And- there's been so much grief and sadness by the people that felt like they had no choice but to leave. Yeah. And, you know, numbers that have never been seen before left last year. We have lost so many friends and a lot of them are parents. Most of them, they're like, I just, we just, for children's sake, we have to get out of here. And I was raised here, you know, we're, I'm fourth generation and I've lived in other states and traveled to the States. I've traveled almost 60 countries and, and, you know, this is a really, really special place it and is. it's, you can't, you can't replicate it anywhere else. I mean, when you look at the climate, you know, our weather, you know, our food, um, the geography, the diversity, the cultural diversity and so on, it's just, you can't, it's just, there's no place like it. I mean, even the land right here, this, you know, the national force, it's right here. It is sacred land. You can feel it. The mm -hmm. second mm -hmm. I'm around those trees, I'm mm -hmm. just transported. Yeah. yeah. And it does break my heart that there has been so much dis-ease here. And it's by design. I, you know, you, you have to understand too that, and, I, and I've, been, I've been very frank. I'm like, folks, we're in a war. And it, it's, it's not just a real World War III. Uh, it is a spiritual war. Uh, it feels multidimensional to me, and it is a modern-day warfare, right? It's psychological, it's disinformation, it's biological, it's it's a war like we've never seen before, and it's stealth, it's quiet, it sneaks in, you know, under the cover of night, and all of a sudden you're wondering what happened to my world. And so we have to realize that, but... I also really encourage people to go out there and actually read the book, you know, The Art of War. Because when you, you know, 2,500-year-old book, and once you read that, uh, you see the patterns really quickly. You're like, oh, that's what they're doing. You know, and who are they? I don't know, the CCP, maybe the Davos group, the 1% of the 1%. I don't know who they are, but national boundaries mean nothing to them. And this is about power and control. And I'm now believing at this point it must be about population reduction because um, if they were really concerned about us being safe from COVID, we would be distributing, you know, um, antibody tests. We'd be distributing vitamin C, D, A, you know, B12. Uh, Even uh, talking and, about it. <laughs> yeah, we'd be we'd be getting yeah. you you know a bunch of uh, gardens, you know, produce gardens out in our neighborhoods and getting our hands in the soil and eating really healthy. And there's never discussion about that because it's it's clear it's it's almost you you learn more about what they're not not talking about than what they are talking about, right? And that's what I saw again behind the scenes in the Zoom calls with elected officials is like, you know, I noticed you guys are never talking about these things. You're only talking about the solution is this. Everyone's going to get a jab. Until everyone gets a jab, we're going to we're going to stay on this route. And and that's what I saw over and over again in the beginning. In the beginning. I can feel your fire and your power from being fourth generation Californian mm -hmm. because think of everyone that came here. Mm -hmm. I mean, those were real not only dreamers, but excavators mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And that takes such bravery mm -hmm. and courage. So when I read that in your bio and 
connecting with the energy of your grandfather. My great grandfather. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, you know, this this contract with Californians and the seventh generation principle and and actually my style of leadership is really based upon my own adventures and, and personal journey. So I was adopted and um, I started looking for my natural family when I was 11, actively writing letters to wow. research organizations saying, could you please help me find my mother? And this was this was spurred by my adoptive family having a aunt come up from England showing a 900 year, right, 900 years wow. back of the family you know, tree. tree. And I was like, holy cow. And I was so excited about that. And then it dawned on me, it wasn't my blood. Mm. And I asked my mama, when do I get to know? And she's like, oh no, you'll never know. That's illegal. Because it was illegal at the time. Was, you know, the files were closed, adoption files. And even at 11, I'm like, okay, no, that's an injustice right there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I might be 11, but I can tell you right now, that is not mm-hmm. fair. And the next day there was an article about men and women looking for their birth parents. It just happened to be, and I grabbed the addresses and wrote letters off. And they all wrote back a week later saying, you know, from your the age, you know, from where you're, what you're telling us, you're 11 years old, you've got plenty of time. And, and legally, we can't do anything for you until you're 18. And again, you know, you're young and the information you've given us, your mother's young, you've got time. Well, these adoption research organizations, you know, and myself, we didn't know it, but my mother, my birth mother was actually sick with breast cancer at that time. and would die a year later at the age of 35. Mm. I'd be about 12 and she would die. And I keep looking for her for 20 years. And so now I'm in my mid twenties. I have spent more than half of my life looking for my mother and my family, and I can't find them. I can't find them. I've gone through researchers. And so at this point, I'm like, okay, well, you know what you're going to do is if you're never going to find them, you're, you're a free agent. Go out there and create yourself, be yourself, and just push yourself and find out what you're made of. And I had already been in, involved in extreme weather expeditions. I had trained with the South Pole Expedition in my early 20s. And then I actually organized an American women's trans-Antarctic expedition when I was about 23 years old. And I got the top outdoor women in the... I know, it's crazy. I'd never done a camping trip in my life. I'm like, we're going to the South Pole. (laughs) And sure enough, I I get the top outdoor women in the country on the team. I had Sue uh, Giller. um, She was a Himalayan climber and Kelly Rhodes and and Anne Bancroft. She was a woman who had skied to the North Pole or dog sledded with Will Steger in 1986, I think it was. I got them on my team and phenomenal. And and I was like in my early 20s, they're all like 15, 20 years older than me, all this incredible experience. And then they, and then about 10 months later, they said, you know, Renette, we've been doing this stuff for 15, 20 years and, and you're just starting. So they kicked me off the team and they went to the South Pole without me. They were mm. the first all women's team to get to the South Pole. And I was very depressed for a year and just upset, like, wow, why bother dreaming if people can take your dream like that? And then one day I snapped out of it and I thought, you know what? Just go cross something. Just go grab the globe, spin it around, look at Siberia, look at Greenland. And and I went, I looked at Alaska. I'd already climbed Denali, you know, McKinley at that point, And I'd done crevasse rescue up there, a training. And Alaska's perfect. No base camp managers, no big corporate sponsorship. You don't need a team. Just go do it by yourself. So I went commercial fishing in the Alaskan Gulf for six months off of Kodiak Island, thinking if you're not tough enough to you know, commercial fish are not tough enough to cross Alaska. It was a great litmus test. It was a great litmus test. And in many ways, commercial fishing in some ways are tougher. Uh, You know, surrounded by all these crazy people on a boat and it gets really hairy as the only woman. And I survived it just fine, but I was ready to be out in the middle of nowhere away from humanity. I was ready to escape. And so then I started training and I was going to snow or ski down the frozen Yukon River. And uh, and I was going to ski journey, which meant I was going to attach two dogs to my waist and then have a a, a sled, a 160 pound sled attached to my waist behind me. And I was going to drag it. And I had a neighbor who was an Iditarod dog sled racer who let me two dogs. I was training with them and and I'm ready to go. And about five days before I'm to leave, he's like, I don't think you can do it. I think you're going to die before you make the first hundred miles. And I was training every day. So he took the dogs. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I ended up saying, fine, I'll pull the sled myself. And five days later, I was 55 below. I'm, I'm pulling the sled by myself without my dogs. And so ultimately I ski down the frozen Yukon River. Uh, I get halfway across the state and uh, the river begins to thaw ahead of time. And it's the only road I knew. Very much the same situation right now. The only road I knew, and I realized I had two options, give up, or I find a different way to continue. And I thought, well, I'll figure it out. I don't know what, but I'll, you know, I see no options, but I'll let me just think about it. <laughs> and I'm staying in this Athabascan native village in a little cabin they let me, and the beauty of life, and this is how it is. And I keep telling people, I've been here before. I'm just telling you all, this is how it's going to go. I'm walking in and out of my little door to my cabin going, I have no options. I don't see a doorway. I don't. I see no no way to get across. What, what can I do? And there's this little thing in a snowbank uh, that's protruding. And as the snow continues to melt, 
this canoe starts to show itself and I unbury it and I dig it out. And it's the last canoe made in this village 20 years before. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. So I go to all the elders and I say, I'm going to build myself a canoe. And word gets back like, no, 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 women don't build canoes. And I had to go back to the elders saying, no, you don't understand where I come from. That's what women do. We're canoe builders. <laughs> you know, like that's what we do. And then they let me the tools and I cut down three trees and I built a canoe. And, wow. and so, you know, I built this canoe and, and this is when I really got to see an insight into humanity because they were going by. Uh, Herb, um, a belly, big-bellied Athabascan, who was a dear friend of mine, said, you know, we call you Wonder Woman because of all the miles you can ski in a day, but you build this canoe and we're going to call you Fruitcake. <laughs> and so he, they started calling me Fruitcake, and then I started doing these 18-foot-long hand planes of wood and hand-planing them for two and a half weeks, five days a week, five hours a day, putting the, the strips of wood into a muskrat pond so they get really moist and pliable. And then I lay it at my feet, and this whole entire time, before I pulled out all the wood, they're like, Fruitcake, passing by hey, fruitcake, you know, and then I get to see humanity. And this is what happened. I start assembling the pieces and everything changes. All of a sudden they come up to me and they start saying, I got a C-clamp if you need a C-clamp for that. And then someone else came up saying, I have, I have some galvanized screws if you need some. And someone else came up saying, I have some uh, oil-based marine paint. Do you like blue and red? And that's how we work as a humanity. Right when people see you doing something, they want to they want to jump on that and they they want to go with you. They want to be part of that. That that lifts their spirit. Mm -hmm. That's how we work as a humanity. So I finished this boat. I built it in three and a half weeks, and I paddled eleven days, on nine hundred miles in eleven days on flat water. I averaged seventy five miles a day, and I take a break oh between. Gosh. So I think my adventure wow. is done. I think it's done, and then the adventure really starts two years later. And I'll keep this brief. I finally pick up the search where I started when I was eleven. I find my natural mother and I find she died about the time when I started looking for her. And I had this little, I had, ends up I had a half brother, four and a half years younger than me. And I track him down, working in Tokyo, Japan. And I find out I have this name, Marcella Funston was my original name. I'm like, oh, I never had a chance of a normal name. Renette mm. Senum, Marcella Funston, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother, and we had this really wild guy uh, as a great grandfather named General Frederick Funston, five foot four, barely hundred pounds. And my brother says, now when you crossed Alaska, that was after you found out her great grandfather father did that trip. And I said, wait, are you, no, you're confused. You're mixing it up. He's like, no, there's a Smithsonian May 1989 edition that actually has the story about his Alaska trip. He was hired by the USDA to go up to Alaska and collect botanical samples. So I'm from, I'm a half hour from UCLA at the time living in LA. And I go up to UCLA in a moment, my life is going to change forever. And I grab this magazine mm -hmm. and I find out my great grandfather, he did not have the luxury that I did to fly into, you know, where I started on the Yukon. So he, his trip was a total of two years. Mine was four months, six days. And he uh, would start his trip on April 10th. I'm like, wow, that's my birthday. That's so ironic. Wow. And then I see he's uh. he's skied down the he's traveled down the Yukon River, fifteen hundred miles. I'm like, well, I did fifteen hundred miles too. And then I see, oh, and he he snowshoed down the frozen Yukon River, and along the way he shot and killed a sled dog to eat because he was starving. I'm like, that's crazy because I I skied down the Yukon River and I I actually saved a sled dog from being shot and killed, and and he helped me pull my sled. And then my great grandfather with two buddies cut down three trees and built a canoe, eighteen foot long canoe. I'm like, that's crazy. I I cut down three trees and I built an 18 foot long <laughs> canoe. And, and then he paddled down the rest of the Yukon River. And at the end of the river, because he's in, you know, big, huge, the, the, you know, by the Bering Sea and he's in the Delta. And it's like three foot, four foot, you know, white cap waves. Um, he tipped his canoe, lost a lot of his photos and botanical samples. And when I built my canoe, I put little stabilizers on them and I made it safely. Now, this is it. He did his trip in 1894. And I did my trip in 1994. He was 27, turned 28 along the way, and I was 27, I turned 28 along the way. So I was like, what in the world? This is mathematically wow. impossible. And then I started to study who this man was, and this is why I'm all about legacy and what we leave behind. Because at the time of his death, he was the highest-ranked military official in the country. He had Patton, Pershing, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and MacArthur under his command. He was overseeing Pershing as he had him pursue Pancho Villa along the Mexican-American border, and he dropped out of a heart attack at 52, put the nation to shock. He was supposed to lead us into the Great War known as World War I. So instead, Pershing took his place. And what he left behind. So in the 1906 earthquake, he was head of the Presidio in San Francisco. He's the one that took command of the city, declared martial law. He's the one who, who uh, demanded, uh, did the command of, of making the, the fire break along Van Ness Boulevard to stop the inferno. And it did stop. Wow. And, then, and then it continued on the flanks. 
And what happened, so this is where legacy comes, what happened is that um, after everything, you know, kind of simmered down, the homeowners that had their homes blown up uh, tried to sue him and the U.S. Army for blowing up their homes. And out of it, well, they lost. And out of it came a ruling known as eminent domain. Do you know how many times I fought eminent domain in my own? I was fighting eminent domain just over a year ago, sleeping in a cemetery and sitting in a tree, trying to save our heritage trees in downtown Nevada City from Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, using eminent domain. Whoa. So I'm thinking, whoa. I just got chills, the timelines. Right. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, now wait a second. So here this guy died in 1917, 52 years old, we're more than 100 years out, and we're still being impacted by his actions. And all of a sudden, I'm really starting to understand what legacy means and what we leave behind. And I'm looking at my life, and I'm scrutinizing everything, going, what am I leaving behind? Because I'm sure my great-grandfather had no idea what he was going to be doing to me, his great-granddaughter, 100 years after he lived and took his last last breath. And so, and when I look at him, I'm like, well, he didn't know that eminent domain was going to be abused and weaponized and misused. But I'm like, but when you look at him as a man and his spirit, he and Carnegie and Roosevelt, they're all about ushering in, uh, you know, American imperialism. This is new foreign policy, right? White man's burden, colonizing the world. Let's domesticate everybody, essentially, right? And so that's how his spirit was. And he was a standard bearer for American imperialism. He was he was actually on the presidential ticket as the VP with Roosevelt, stumping. And he was talking about American imperialism, how great it is when we go out there and we're going to conquer the world. And we're going to make everyone like an American, right? And and he kept getting word like, you guys, they kept, you know, the team kept saying, stop it, shut up, be quiet, stop talking about this, you know, don't tell everyone what we're doing. And he wouldn't shut up and they took him off the ticket. So when I look about who he was as a person, and I think about the spirit of eminent domain, how it's continued and rippled out for a hundred years, I'm like, of course it's being weaponized. Of of course, it's eviscerating and steamrolling over us because that that's who he was as a, as a person. That was his core, his spirit. And so I look at myself and say, well, what's your core? What's your spirit? W what are your actions going to leave behind? Well, that's what this whole campaign is about. This campaign is about legacy. This campaign is about you guys. We have got to start asking ourselves, what are we leaving behind for our children and their children and their children? We have to because that is real. It's as real as you and me sitting at this table right now. And that's something that I feel I've really connected to over the past couple of years. And it was just when I learned that, you know, the Native American having that as the soul of everything, of every decision, seven mm -hmm. back and seven forward, mm -hmm. it just makes a sense. Mm -hmm. Of course it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But literally no one's doing it. Mm -mm. No. And especially no candidate is doing it. Yeah. And, and I understand because people aren't, they're not doing this for legacy. They're not doing this for the children. They're really doing this for their pocketbook and their power yeah. and their control. And, and I think we all now are really coming to grips, right, uh, with what that does to us in our lives and, and, and the potential for our children's future. It's pretty sad. And, but it's okay. This is our opportunity. I'm going to go back to where I started, mm -hmm. which is... These are the cracks. This is we are seeing the light, and and it's up to us to to be proactive and not sit back. And I know people are kind of you know in shock, right? There's still what happened in our world. It's like no, no, no. This is this is the opportunity. We can now do things that we were was not even available to us two years ago. People weren't even open to listening or hearing this type of campaign, thinking this way leading this way, engaging this way. It wasn't even on our radar. We were, we were too busy, too busy. Totally. So true. I, I think that all the, every day, like how much I've changed and a lot of it has been, you know, under the kind of guise of feeling trapped or pushed upon, but I also like who I am so much more. Mm -hmm. I've grown in mm -hmm. so many ways and every mom I know has too. Yeah. And we're showing up yeah. so much more in our power and our innate power. Yeah. So for everyone that's listening, because this is, you know, this community is for mamas and a lot of California mothers, but also mothers around the world. What is kind of like your biggest take home for us in our daily? Well, well, I would have to say this is, um, and I and I say this to everyone is that yes, I'm running for governor, but we're also challenging people to engage at the local level for the school boards, running for the school boards, the city council, the county, you know, state assembly, and in, in Congress, and at the federal level, really engage. And if you don't want to engage, 
in politics, I understand, but start thinking about the seven generation principle within your life. Whether you're a police officer, a, an educator, you know, a doctor, it doesn't matter, right? A garbage man. Um, really think seven generation principle. And what I say to folks is, and they're like, what do you mean? Like, I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you're a farmer, you've got your crop, and then you have some weeds in a road. Do you spray your weeds with Roundup or do you spray it with white vinegar? What serves the seventh generation? You have yeah. a to-go container, you want to take some food somewhere, do you use a throwaway plastic or do you use stainless steel or a glass container? What better serves the seventh generation? Mm-hmm. We're much more powerful than we realize. We make tens and tens of thousands of tiny little decisions every single day that send us all collectively in a certain trajectory. And it's up to us to realize how consciously we can start changing our future through the tiny steps we take every single day. And it's so empowering because we it is available to us. Yeah. It, it just w- takes yeah. the foresight. Yeah. Yeah, we're much more powerful than we realize. Yeah. So true. Well, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. And just go to electronet.com. You'll learn more about me. And Renette is spelled R-E-I-N-E-T-T-E. Electronet.com. You'll find more, more awesome. about it. And thank I you. so love your logo, Wake the Bear, because we are waking up and yeah. we've awakened. And we it's exciting. It is. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. very much. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Jay Ma. Jay.